This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. This week on Radio EcoShock, who will suffer more climate change disasters than any other country? The people of India. Calling in from the hot zone, veteran Asia correspondent Bill Spindle explains why energy choices in India could determine the future for you and the world. From Potsdam, atmospheric chemist Kathleen Marr warns our system underestimates the growing danger of methane, that other major warming gas. Soon enough, this civilization will be swamped with continuing hits as climate breaks down. Forget disaster declarations. It's all year for fires, floods, droughts, and weird crop-killing weather. If we do not contain everyday pollution of the atmosphere, the land, and the seas, catastrophe will be the new normal, won't it? That is the scientific fact. Reality is becoming unreal for many. Where is the stable ground, the place safe enough to make a stand? Nobody can take plans or actions for granted. Can we maintain enough order to make the great changes we need? Is there any steering left on this bus? I am sorry if you are down at times. It is understandable in a mad, mad world. Please do find enough joy to save in some safe place, to feed on when the soul gets hungry. Part of that joy for me is to witness and to grow in understanding. We try to do that here on Radio EcoShock with wise voices from all over the world. Welcome to that world, as it is and as it could be. What if a game-changing climate event struck on the other side of the world and you didn't know much about it? India and Pakistan just went through a record-smashing early heat wave, lasting not days, but months. Bill Spindle was there. Bill is a Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellow in India. Before that, he was South Asia Bureau Chief for the Wall Street Journal. Where are you located right now, Bill? Hey, Alex. Thanks for having me on. I really I really appreciate it. Uh, I am currently uh, in Ratnagiri is the name of the town or the area along the Konkan coast, which is uh, south of, of Mumbai, four hours drive south along the coast. I think the furthest south I've been along that way is Goa. Yes, I'm a little north of Goa, sort of in between Mumbai and uh, and Goa. And uh, as you may or may not know, your your listeners, I've, I'm on a long journey uh, through <laughs> through India. I started all the way on the other side of the country in Kolkata, visited a number of areas there, came across the country through the northwest deserts, down through Mumbai, and then uh, I'm I'm now heading south. And then I'll go across the country and back up again in a, in a big circle. All of, and the whole time I'm looking at sort of climate impacts along the way, um, and also energy transition issues in in various places. So we can uh, we can take it from there. Well, that's perfect for this show. That's what we're about. What was it like day to day in that massive heat wave? Hot. <laughs> It's a kind of oppressive heat. Um, you know, I would just d- describe it as like having when you're in a taxi with the window open and some of the taxis here are, are not air conditioned. Uh, if you have the window open, it's like having a blow dryer right into your face. And the most difficult thing is, is it, it really doesn't recede a lot in the evening, especially in the cities. And so, as you can imagine, most Indians don't have uh, really don't 
have any sort of air conditioning that's just beginning here that to the middle middle class is, is able to get some air conditioning, but mostly Indians don't have any air conditioning and many in rural areas or in urban slums don't have even fans. So their situation is, it really becomes quite dire under those kind of conditions, especially when they go on sort of day after day, week after week, as they did this spring where we touched, you know, temperature highs that really were, would be records even in the summer um, when the heat like now is really generally when the heat really starts to pick up. But it, it, it began really in March this year. Well, they found in other places, including in Britain, that when heat events happen at an unexpected time of year, the first one to come actually causes more deaths than subsequent ones where people are a little more mentally and maybe physically prepared. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it, it did catch people unawares here. And I, the, the real only saving grace of it all is that it came before the rainy season so you didn't have high humidity in many places where you would normally have higher humidity if the rains had come. Because that's really the, the great fear that everyone has going forward as temperatures begin to sort of rise is this what's called the wet bulb temperature, the, the, the combination of humidity and heat, um, which doesn't, if you have high humidity, it doesn't require incredibly un- unprecedented heat to get to a point where the, the human body really can't cool itself down because it can't sweat off the, you know, it can't cool its core by sweating. And so you can get, um, you know, even in the low 90s, uh, if the humidity is high enough, you can you can get lethal, lethal levels. And we didn't have that during this particular heat wave, but that is, uh, that is a big fear for the future. Was there smog as well in the cities? The smog tends to recede in the spring. That's um, the worst in the winter because of the way the cool air is trapped by the Himalaya mountains. And uh, you get a buildup of smog similar to what L.A. used to have in the 70s. Um, so the smog wasn't that bad, but air is never very uh, – air pollution levels, even in the best parts of the year, are really quite, uh, quite bad, particularly in north, northern India. Well, let's see what the record keepers say. The Scientific American writes, quote, Northwestern and Central India, some of the worst affected regions, are believed to have experienced their hottest April on record. The country as a whole saw its hottest March in 122 years of recorded history and its fourth hottest April this year. And, quote, this sounds like a breakthrough climate event. Bill, do you see it that way? Yes and no. I, I think it, it is an event that really got everyone's attention, not only globally, but but here in India. And it, it really raised awareness of the acute threat that, that various climate impacts have. On the other hand, uh, India has had big heat waves before. Uh, slowly, there's been a realization that uh, particularly cities need to prepare themselves for this. And there's been a, a spread of these so-called uh, heat action plans. Uh, there was a big heat wave in the Northwest, uh, in 19, I think it was 2011, perhaps, where a couple thousand people died. And so they've come up with plans that try to better predict these events, try to get the word out to particularly uh, poorer communities uh, that this is happening, try to get workers off the streets, try to distribute water. And they, you know, they do help. And I think this is a this is a broad theme, really, in, in sort of climate related events in the developing world, particularly India, is the way that there are ways people can respond to these things. They can adapt. Communities can figure out ways to mitigate the damages, the, the threats. Um, cyclones are a, a big example. 
you know, massive cyclones have hit the coast used to kill thousands and thousands of people um, through fairly simple measures like just having much better predictive capabilities that through weather forecasting advances and building big uh, kind of hurricane shelter, uh, cyclone shelters in even really poor rural areas where a whole village can go up and get above the water have really cut the deaths down dramatically. Um, And you, you see some of the same phenomenon with heat by reacting to it with a coordinated plan, they can reduce the mortality levels and stuff. But the important thing to understand is there are limits to this sort of adaptation. You can only do it to a certain extent at, at which point it begins to overwhelm the system and you really can't mitigate for it anymore. You can't, you can't really adapt to it in any ways. And I think that's the big, that's the big fear going forward is that these events become more, as they become more common, as they're accompanied by other climate events that we can talk about. I mean, these heat issues are far from the only climate impacts I've seen on my trip so far um, and that it is experiencing. So as these kind of different climate effects, you know, they, they kind of collide into each other, they reverberate, they cascade on each other it becomes more and more difficult to adapt. So there's just limits to how much you can do, even though there is a lot you can do on, on all of these fronts and a lot that Indians are trying to too slowly do. There, there simply are limits to it over time. This is going to come back. The UK Met Office saw proper to issue a special assessment on May the 18th, and they said the chances of a record-breaking heat wave in that part of the world has been made over 100 times more likely because of climate change. So it's going to come back. Now, writing in the Atlantic magazine in May, you said the world has no choice but to care about India's heat wave. Why is that? I think there are a number of reasons about it. I think, you know, how, well, first off, India is is now the second largest, second most populous country in the world. About 1.4 billion people live in India. Uh, by the end of the decade, it'll be the most populous country in the world. So just simply from a humanitarian perspective, India will likely be the country that experiences where the most people experience the most severe impacts of climate change. So simply as a humanitarian matter of just caring about other human beings, this is the place, India is the place where the most people will experience the most extreme impacts likely over the next couple of decades. But that then definitely reverberates out beyond the country and has global global implications. Uh, you know, there are certainly concerns about migration. Uh, if large swaths of India become essentially uninhabitable, those people will have to move elsewhere. And, you know, those will ca- cause disruptions both across borders and within India. It will have a big impact on the economy. And to the extent that, um, for example, America is increasingly moving into a partnership with India in the Indo-Pacific, for example, for security reasons, for trade and economic reasons. You know, in, in India, that is hobbled and struggling with climate impacts throughout the next several decades is simply not going to be as good a partner, both economically, security-wise, uh, or, or anything else, as, as an India that has uh, got these problems in and these challenges under under control. So those are some of the reasons. I think another is, is simply that India, on the other hand, flip side of the coin, has a huge amount to offer in terms of mitigation of climate change globally. It's it's already the third largest contributor to emissions on a historical level, of course, very little contribution, um, cumulatively over time on a per capita basis, very small compared to Europe, the United States, especially, or, or even China. 
Um, yet it, it is emitting quite a bit more uh, fossil fuels and it is very dependent on coal. So whether India and how India is able to get its renewable energy sector moving and, and we can talk about that. There's just been huge progress in that area. India's got great promise in things like solar, uh, wind, um, and is moving into this whole hydrogen space. So India has a lot to offer in terms of both cutting its own emissions over time by building a whole new energy system based on, you know, with its backbone in renewables. It's well on the way to starting that project and uh, is making really quite amazing, remarkable progress in, in some ways. So that's, uh, you know, I think that's another important reason. And beyond India, it will show the rest of the developing world ways in which to go about this challenge of how do you build a, a, a sort of new energy system on top, you know, it, instead of Europe and the U United States, which essentially have to replace an existing huge energy system, India doesn't really have to do that quite so much. And places like Africa really don't need to do that at all. They don't have a giant energy system built up based on fossil fuels yet. Um, and India can really, I think, be a leader in showing how to build out a new energy system as opposed to replacing an existing one. And that's really the challenge that India has and the developing world has. In the West, billionaires like Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates promised big money to push energy transition. In your blog, The Energy Adventurer, you reveal two fossil fuel heavyweights appear to be shifting a little towards greener power. Please tell us about Mukesh Ambani and the world's largest oil refinery. Yes, there's two. I think one big trend we've seen is that solar uh, in particular and renewables generally have gone from smaller companies here, upstarts that have made tremendous progress and have driven the price of, of solar really down like 90 some percent, 95 plus percent, I believe, uh, and made solar uh, and renewable energy, energy really the cheapest form of, it, of energy in India, at least while it's being certainly while it's being delivered. But a big trend recently is that, you know, not only is the government staking big, ambitious plans to roll out a, a big uptick in renewable energy over the next you know, 10, 20 years, uh, but big companies here like Mukesh Ambani's uh, Reliance Corporation, uh, Gautam Adani's is another giant uh, kind of uh, mogul here that's built his fortune on oil and gas. NTPC is the big, uh, largely government-owned power generator, that very, very coal-based. They're all moving quite decisively toward renewable energy. Now, that doesn't mean they're cutting back necessarily on fossil fuels. Uh, in fact, at the world's largest refinery that I visited recently, uh, they are making you know record margins uh, refining oil uh, and a, a significant chunk of it uh, Russian oil. You know they're not. And Adani is a is kind of a coal baron in some ways. He's got a giant, coal, very controversial coal uh, mine in Australia, mines in Indonesia. They're bringing in coal as fast as they can bring it in. They're refining oil and gas as fast as they can refine it right now. Um, so they're not giving up on that, and yet they are putting quite massive resources into renewable energy uh, right next to the oil refinery that I visited where they're doing all that, uh, taking in all that oil from everywhere, including, including Russia. They are also laying the groundwork for a giant uh, solar panel manufacturing facility. And that will be eventually 
according to Reliance, followed by a hydrogen electrolyzer plant, a fuel cell plant, and a battery plant, all on a, on a massive scale. Now, those are all still on paper. It will be a long time till those are all rolled out. But all in all, that Reliance's plans there, were they to carry them out to, uh, to the end, and they're, and they're pretty serious about it, I think. It, w- it really is one of the world's most ambitious integrated renewable energy projects. It's, it's really quite huge and, and typifies India's approach, which is let's build out renewables as fast as we can in many ways, but at the same time, we're going to need traditional fuels as well, and we'll see how that plays out over time. You know, that's uh, a message that a lot of environmentalists find quite scary because we really need to be reducing coal, you know, starting yesterday. And oil and gas really probably need to follow, not not soon afterwards. But um, that the thinking around that is, I think, shifting in, in India. But, you know, right now the whole energy system is built on coal and imported oil. So that's going to be continue that way for quite some time to come, but it will be interesting to see how renewables, whether they're solar, wind, hydrogen, hydro, how they begin to push, you know, can they basically be built out faster than demand expands and therefore start pushing coal out of the system? I don't think that's beyond the realm of possibility beginning after the 2030. Uh, you may see things move faster, faster than people expect and are willing to talk about now. But uh, for now, it's a kind of we need it all approach um, that works for India and is not entirely in line with global goals to reduce reduce emissions. globally. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm your host, Alex Smith. Get all our previous programs at our website, EcoShock.org. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with our guest, veteran Asian correspondent Bill Spindle. David Wallace Wells, in an opinion piece in the New York Times, writes, quote, According to one paper cited in its most recent report, India is 31% poorer thanks to climate change, which has already made global inequality 25% worse. So India has actually become poorer than it might have been if they'd had the same stable climate that the West uh, had when we were industrializing. So the game isn't really very fair. Yeah, and and Indians uh, at all levels will be very quick to point all of this out to you. It is not fair. It's not fair that they're paying a higher price for emissions that they are not responsible for. Looking historically, they've contributed a very small portion of the cumulative greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Um, and even today on a, on a per capita basis, uh, they're really emitting far, far less than the U.S., Europe, Japan, China, everybody. But it is true that they are paying a higher price. South Asia is one of the most exposed areas to climate change, uh, certainly. I think there was a Standard & Poor's consultancy put out a report not long ago saying that its economy is something like 10 times more vulnerable. So Indians are, are quite aware of this. And the rest of the world should re- really be too, because if India's economy continues to pay a massive price, and it will be a massive price over the next couple of decades due to this climate exposure, this will redound to the rest of the world to a, to a considerable extent. As I say, it'll be a, India will be a, not as good a trade partner uh, as it could be. It will be not nearly as effective a security partner as it could have been otherwise 
but also it's just it's just a, a kind of loss of potential that will you know, impact India and the rest of the world if, if things continue like they are. Well, I think in the old colonial world, there was the thought that their loss is our gain kind of mentality. But surely COVID, among all other things, shows us that if one part of humanity doesn't reach their potential, we all lose a lot. And I wonder, though, looking at Sri Lanka, is the economy of India stable enough to deal with this even more challenging future coming up? I think India's economy is a lot more stable than Sri Lanka's for sure, and a lot stronger and less vulnerable to those sorts of things. But that is a it is a, a bit of an object lesson about where India and other countries could wind up if the combination of you know additional challenges from climate impacts combined with poor management of the challenges. Um, you know, and that's India has generally done far better than Sri Lanka over the last few years, uh, needless to say. Uh, but but India's government has always struggled uh, to manage the massive population that they have and the massive diversity and economic challenges that they face. So I think being overwhelmed by the climate impacts over time is certainly a danger. But I think, you know, that kind of going back to what you you're saying about caring about why to care about India. I think the other thing to realize is that there's a lot of potential for foreign investment to share in all of this. India, you know, has a improving investment environment that's always had some challenges, continue to have some challenges, but they're improving the environment. There are huge opportunities for investment in India's uh, renewable energy sector and green technology sector for foreign companies, some of which are already taking advantage of it, uh, Goldman Sachs, the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority, a huge sovereign wealth fund. They're big players in, in, in India's energy space. Uh, giant pension funds around the world are starting to pour money in. So there's a lot of opportunity, um, especially if the ways can be found through some of the multilateral institutions like the IMF, the World Bank, uh, particularly the latter, to de-risk some of these investments. The main problem, I think, is that uh, a giant pension fund is conservative enough that it's worried about risk if the World Bank uh, and international lenders can find ways to mitigate some of that risk for private investors, then you'll see a lot more money coming in. And, and that's the real promise of, of India's renewable sector, I think, is that there's it, it is so inexpensive to build solar here. Not that it's easy or without its challenges, but it, it, it really is the cheapest form of energy uh, to the extent that there's really enough for both India to cut its energy costs while putting in renewable energy, and at the same time, foreign investors to get a pretty decent return, particularly if, if some of the risk is taken out of that equation. So there's there are these massive opportunities to be taken advantage of. So it's not just avoiding the disastrous potential down the road of these things. It's that there's a lot of potential gain for everybody involved to try to build out India's renewable sector as fast as it can be built out and hopefully fast enough so that it, it really exceeds the growth of energy demand. And therefore, you can begin to push coal out of the system and get India to a point where it can see huge energy growth, which is what it's going to have because its population is growing, its economy is growing quite rapidly. Its energy use is going to double over the next 20, 30 years. 
And somehow that has to happen without doubling, tripling its its emissions. In fact, it needs to do it by under its own goal by reducing its emissions eventually down to net zero by 2070. That's a huge challenge and a different challenge than the than the developed world really faces. But it's that's India's challenge, and there are ways that uh, that foreign investment could play a huge role in that. And that's really, I think, what the next big climate conference, this COP, these COP conferences they have every year that's going to be held this year in uh, in Egypt. I think that's really going to be the big issue there as to what extent and how is the developed world going to contribute and find ways to, to help India and the developing world in this transition in ways that, that can very well benefit the investors as well. Bill Spindle, how long have you been in India on this trip? This trip I've been here, I got here in February, uh, started in, in the northeastern part of the country in February. So I'm about four months in. I've got two months to go. Uh, I was living in India for four years prior to 2020. So uh, I'm familiar with it, but I'm learning all sorts of new things, uh, as you do when you travel in Yes, in the East, you talk about it in your Energy Adventurer blog. You take us on a tour of some threatened places as you go. Do you want to talk about the Sundarbans? Is that how you pronounce it, Sundarbans? Yeah, the Sundarbans are a, are a globally uh, unique ecosystem, the largest mangrove tidal estuary in the world. About 40% of it is in India. The other 60% is in Bangladesh. And it is an area that is uniquely vulnerable to climate impacts, partly because it's very low-lying to begin with. Uh, Much of it is basically at sea level or barely above sea level. So as sea levels begin to rise, they combine with the other big climate impact they're seeing there, which is is more frequent than intense cyclones. And so you get these combinations of higher water levels with huge storm surges from these more intense cyclones and rain uh, from these more intense cyclones. And it it really has created big challenges for an area that's really used to things like flooding. And, you know, flooding is part of life there. And they've learned how to deal with it over time. Cyclones are part of life there. They've, They've always had big storms come in occasionally. What's different now is that those storms are happening not once a decade, but well, they've had four in the last uh, in the last basically two years, a year and a half, really. And you know where they had a cycle before, you'd have a big storm, you'd have a lot of damage. Salt water gets into the uh, rice fields, that makes them basically unfarmable for at least a year or so. As they begin to recover, they need then rains to monsoon rains to begin to lower the salinity level. So over time, they would adjust. Uh, and that was a fairly manageable task for, for a population that's really quite poor, about 4 million people there that are really generally quite poor. But they could adjust to those sorts of cycles. Um, what's happening now is that they're being battered so hard and so often that adjustment really becomes difficult. It's that being overwhelmed factor. On a kind of middle, a kind of small scale here, and they're uh, so they're having a hard time adjusting. So I went to an area, an island called Goramara, which is basically eroding away, as islands have done there in the past over long stretches of time. 
that this island's lost about half its its land mass and about more than half its population in the last five to ten years, really, as it's been battered by these storms, including one last year that that literally put the whole island under twelve about eleven feet of water, uh, wiped out everything. For amazingly, no one. Uh, there were no deaths during the storm itself. They were uh, managed to get into their cyclone shelter above the water level, barely, but the whole island went underwater. They lost everything. And really, it's at this point, there's really no salvaging much of the other. Are a couple thousand people still living there. Uh, they have no electricity. They're not ever going to get electricity because the government has basically written the island off at this point. The goal at this point is to slowly relocate the population elsewhere. Um, and so that's a, a kind of situation that, that the Sundarbans has faced. I, I spent a lot of time looking at uh, mangrove restoration, which is one of the main reasons that, that uh, many of the islands down there and the, the uh, communities are quite vulnerable is because they've dredged out or one way or another killed off the mangrove swamps that uh, the stands of mangroves that provide a lot of protection against those kinds of storms. You know, there and there you have that combination of, of sort of human behavior and human interaction with the environment that isn't very, very well managed uh, either by the government or the communities themselves, leaving them more vulnerable. And so then climate change comes along with uh, kind of additional challenges, and they're really quite vulnerable to it. And that's a pattern you're seeing over and over here. I'm not only here, but everywhere around the world. That's the thing. I think you've given us a great vision of India, but it's also kind of a portrait of the future in so many places. Bill Spindle has reported from Asia for Newsday, Bloomberg, and the Wall Street Journal. You can keep up with Bill's insights in his blog, The Adventurer, and the address is billspindle.substack.com. I will put links to that and more in my own show blog at ecoshock.org, as always. Bill, thank you for sharing your insight with our listeners. Thanks, Alex. It's been great to, to be able to do this. Really enjoyed it. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. Climate change is carbon dioxide, right? Except at least 20% of global warming comes from methane. It is a wild west for methane emissions, with hardly any rules or controls out there. This super potent greenhouse gas is increasing every year. Methane more than doubled pre-industrial levels, warming the planet and helping kill millions by increased smog. New science led by Kathleen Marr suggests old ideas about methane can be dangerous. Dr. Kathleen Marr heads a key climate study group at the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies. That's in Potsdam, Germany. Kathleen's doctorate in atmospheric chemistry is from the University of California, and she has worked at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. From Potsdam, Kathleen Marr, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you. In recent years, shocking heat waves struck many parts of the world, including my home in western Canada, but now heat wave seems to become extreme heat months in Pakistan and India. Kathleen, is it possible rising methane is contributing to earlier-than-expected warming? I have a couple aspects of answer to this question. One is it's certainly clear that methane is one important contributor to the warming that we are already experiencing. 
experiencing. So the latest IPCC report tells us that we are already at 1.1 degrees Celsius, um, global warming above the pre-industrial average. Methane is certainly a contributor to that, at least uh, to about 20% of the existing warming. I can't tell you from my research how much of the specific heat waves are coming from methane, and I guess I would also push back on the idea that this is this warming is earlier than expected. Um, I think, you know, also maybe 20 years ago, 10 years ago even, we thought about global warming as a problem of the future, but really global warming is here and different parts of the world are experiencing it with different intensity. But as I mentioned, um, they were already 1.1 degrees of warming. So I'm not sure that these, these heat waves are necessarily unexpected. Well, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change includes methane. In the new paper, you and your co-authors write, quote, the UNFCCC framework neglects the impacts of CH4, which is methane, has on near-term climate. Could you explain that, please? Methane is a greenhouse gas, and it's covered under the UNFCCC, which is the UN Climate Convention, the latest big agreement was the Paris Agreement, which many of you have heard of. And um, among the greenhouse gases, CO2 is the most prominent, also the most important. And all the other greenhouse gases, their impact on warming gets compared to the impact of CO2, and specifically looking at how much warming it causes over 100 years. So CO2 uh, is very long-lived in the atmosphere, which is one of the things that makes it very challenging, because when we stop emitting CO2 today, the CO2 we emitted yesterday, like even if we stopped our CO2 emissions magically, the CO2 we emitted yesterday, a huge portion would still be in the atmosphere 100 years from now. So this is one of the reasons that makes climate change uh, as a problem so intractable. The thing about methane is, in comparison to CO2, if you look at this 100-year warming, uh, they use a metric called global warming potential over 100 years, and methane on a ton-per-ton basis is about 30 times more potent of a warmer than CO2. So as a molecule, methane is a strong um, absorber. It leads to a lot of warming. But the thing about methane, that's, or one thing about methane that's different from CO2 is that it gets removed from the atmosphere much more quickly, primarily through chemical processes. But that means it, its lifetime is on the order of 10 to 12 years. That means um, it gets removed from the atmosphere much more quickly. So if we look at short time frames, if we only look at the warming, consider the warming impact over 20 years, for instance, then methane is about 80 times more powerful of a warmer than CO2. So going back to the UNFCCC with your question, everything under the UNFCCC is kind of uses this GWP 100, this 100-year time frame, as the, as the metric. But that means that methane's impact on near-term warming is overlooked or neglected, under, underrepresented. We all want to know where is the new methane coming from. A scientist like you and Nisbet, who was on our program, he found the largest source of increasing methane are tropical bogs. But citing a 2020 study led by another guest, Rob Jackson, you write, a new study concludes that the recent growth is due in roughly equal parts to emissions from fossil fuel sources 
and the combined emissions from agricultural and waste sources, end quote. So the methane budget's not settled in science? That is my perception. So that is not my particular area of expertise. I read a lot of these studies. So methane budget means, like, if you imagine um, the amount of methane in the atmosphere is like your bank account, the, how much money is in your bank account is the balance between how much is going in, in the case of methane, the emissions, and how much is being taken out. Um, and in the case of methane, that's uh, chemical decomp- t- composition primarily. But that's what it means when people are trying to figure out what the methane budget is. It's not so easy to measure slash calculate. There's different methods of doing that, and the different methods come up with some different answers. So I did cite this um, study by Jackson, which is quite recent, but I think it's not completely resolved as a matter of scientific inquiry where exactly the, the primary sources of the methane increases are coming from. One thing the science community does agree on, the worrying rise in methane is not coming from the Arctic. Is that a surprise? I don't think so. To me, it's not a surprise. Um, if, so I know there's, there's concern about permafrost melting in the Arctic, for instance, as a source of methane. But when I read the scientific studies in more detail about that, first of all, it's not expected so soon. Um, it would be more relevant on like a 50-year time frame. And the other thing about permafrost is that when it melts, you create methane kind of under the earth, under the permafrost, but a lot of it becomes CO2 by the time it's emitted in the atmosphere, which doesn't mean it's less of a climate problem. It's The permafrost melting will lead to methane, but also CO2 emissions. So for me, um, it, it's not a surprise uh, that methane is not coming from the Arctic. Jackson finds we're heading towards the hottest scenario envisioned by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is 4.3 degrees C of warming by the year 2100. What does your study group expect for methane levels by 2050? So I have to say here that we are not the ones making these sort of projections. So the study um, that I recently published on methane it's really kind of an interdisciplinary synthesis study where we're synthesizing the many different aspects of the natural science together with a view on the, the governance, so the social and political science of methane. So, unfortunately, I'm the wrong expert to ask about that one. Okay. And your paper finds methane heats the planet in so many ways, four by my count. Kathleen, talk to us about the three continuing impacts as methane breaks down. Methane, when it ends up in the atmosphere, gets broken down by chemical reactions. So the, the chain of chemical reactions is usually started by what's known as the hydroxyl radical OH. And then you get these byproducts, you get these intermediate products as methane is broken down. And one important one is tropospheric ozone. Ozone itself is also a climate warmer at once. The atmosphere, so you have a warming impact from one of um, methane's degradation products, and perhaps even more importantly, tropospheric ozone is an air pollutant. So, it's uh, when you breathe it, it irritates your lungs. Um, it causes asthma as well as other, yeah, other health problems associated with uh, COPD, for instance. The end product 
of methane oxidation is actually CO2. <laughs> so um, there's a little bit of a, a two-for-one there. So when uh, this, uh, this chemistry, this chain of chemistry is finished, we end up with CO2. We know CO2 is also warming. And another um, small byproduct of methane oxidation is water in the stratosphere, stratospheric water vapor, that also has a warming impact. Going back to tropospheric ozone, so I mentioned the health effects of tropospheric ozone, but that actually has further effects. Ozone is free radical back, I don't know, in the 90s. This was a popular term for things that were harmful, but basically tropospheric ozone is very reactive. So it not only reacts in your lungs, but it damages plants and causes crop losses. So there's estimates of the damages to crops um, that are due to ozone. And um, there's a good indication that it reduces the land carbon storage. So you think of forests, for instance, as absorbing carbon. Um, there's a potential for damage by ozone to then reduce, basically harm the plants and reduce their ability to uptake carbon, although that's a very complicated, there's very complicated relationships there. So that, that piece is associated with more scientific uncertainty. So these new additional gases from the breakdown and the impacts on the possible buffering ability of plant life, those things aren't really and can't really be included in just talking about a carbon dioxide equivalent as the UN body tends to do. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly the point of the article I just wrote. So when we treat methane as simply a CO2 equivalent multiplied by a factor of 30 were missing some pieces. And, of course, the most important thing is that we emit less methane, that we practically stop emitting methane, uh, regardless of why or, you know, how the legal structure is. But, for instance, you know, if you think about carbon markets or carbon pricing schemes, there are a few, many don't include, many that exist don't include um, methane, and the ones that do are also the price based on its CO2 equivalent, but, you know, for instance, if you wanted to take into account the strong near-term warming impact or any of the other impacts, it's just, it's not, not included in that sort of scheme. You are an atmospheric chemist, Kathleen Moore. Do we know if climate change itself will create more methane emissions? We have some ideas, but there's a lot of scientific uncertainty. So basically, it, it comes down to the question of natural methane sources. So, of course, the anthropogenic sources are under our control, let's say, for instance, um, fossil fuels, oil and gas. Um, the other important sources are waste, waste management, and also agriculture. But as the earth gets warmer, what happens to the natural sources? So, for instance, wetlands are the most important natural source of methane right now. And how much methane they emit is determined by many factors, including the soil temperature, water table depth, vegetation cover and composition. These are all things that are affected, will be affected by climate change, but it's very difficult to say exactly how that's going to have an effect on methane emissions. But basically, uh, the scientific understanding right now is that it, it will lead to more methane emissions under climate change uh, from wetlands, for instance, but it's pretty hard hard to quantify. Also, um, this permafrost melting, for instance, I mentioned before, um, it's possible 
that that will lead to significantly increased methane emissions, but we don't really know when or how much. But uh, on the whole, it, it doesn't look so good <laughs> that uh, more climate change means more natural methane emissions is, is probably the case. I gather methane itself is not a poisonous gas for us, but health concerns do emerge from methane. Could you talk to us about how that works? Yeah, so um, from an air pollution perspective, things are usually considered air pollutants if you breathe it in, and then breathing it in has a harmful effect. And so for this reason, methane has never really been categorized as an air pollutant because itself, you just breathe it in and breathe it out. Um, It's inert. But it's a very important precursor or source of tropospheric ozone. So when methane sticks around in the atmosphere for a little while, it begins to react, and then you create ozone. And um, as mentioned before, ozone is then a serious air pollution and health problem. Um, It damages the lungs. It's um, associated with asthma, um, COPD, and other lung diseases. And in fact, um, you know, there's other precursors to tropospheric ozone that as air pollution controls improve on the whole globally, methane is becoming a more and more important uh, source of tropospheric ozone. So it's going to become important to address it in an air pollution context as well. There are some regulatory things going on. First of all, can big companies or countries excuse fossil fuel emissions at home by purchasing an offset credit related to methane as they can for carbon dioxide? Yes. For instance, if you think internationally, um, it would be possible for a company to say, okay, it's too expensive for me to reduce my own carbon emissions. So I'm going to invest in and essentially pay for this project in a different country. And let's say this project captures methane from landfills, then yes, that can go in their accounting sheet. It's always a question of who, yeah, account, accounting of carbon is very tricky. It's always a question of who's, who's counting what system it is. But under the UNFCCC, these projects are allowed. Um, as we get to a future very soon where we really shouldn't be emitting, uh, using fossil fuels at all, like this becomes problematic. We just have to stop emitting. But this, this is possible, yeah. From Potsdam, Germany, you are listening to scientist Kathleen Marr on the new understanding of methane. Why is it building in the atmosphere? How much is it heating planet Earth? This is Radio EcoShock, blasting around the world from EcoShock.org. There are annual meetings about the Convention of the Parties to Agreements on Climate Change. We had COP26 in Scotland. Is there an international body charged with regulating and reducing air pollution? The short answer is no. Well, there's no treaty. So the UNFCCC is a treaty, and then under this treaty, there's all these meetings, and it produces the Paris Agreement, for instance. There's no treaty covering air pollution globally, UN Environment, the UNEP Environment Program, or UNEP, is increasingly doing more on air pollution and falls um, under them as a UN agency, at least because it's an environmental issue. But there's increasing attention to air pollution within within UNEP, and they have some resolutions about air pollution. But there's there's no global treaty now. 
Do we really know how much methane each country is putting into the atmosphere? I would say yes, but with what precision and accuracy, it gets a little bit fuzzy. So in terms of emissions, each country is required to submit reports to the UNFCCC about their emissions, including methane emissions. They do that for the most part. There's also, besides self-reporting, there's scientific methodologies to you know, make independent estimates. People do that. Um, that doesn't mean there aren't uncertainties. And right now, the two biggest uncertainties with kind of political ramifications are, one, um, particularly in the oil and gas sector, there has been studies that show basically using infrared cameras to detect methane leaks and studies that show, okay, the emissions that are being reported are way too low or that there's way more leaks than that companies are either aware of or reporting. So that's that's a source of uncertainty. And as well, from agriculture, the, the methodologies for estimating emissions are, are less advanced, let's say. Um, there has been some progress on this front. There's a new initiative under the UN called the they call it EMEA, the International Methane Emissions Observatory. So fundamentally, they're going to be compiling data from many sources to calculate methane emissions. But one of the, the important sources is satellite data. So there has been significant advances in the science on being able to detect methane emissions from satellites. So that, that information is getting better and better. In most countries, I could drill into the ground and release lots of methane without breaking any laws, national or international. In fact, most gas fracking operations vent new wells with methane for a couple of weeks before they capture the natural gas. That's why I called it a Wild West situation. This gas, which is so dangerous to both climate and human health, how can it remain free to dump into the air in any amounts? Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, part of the answer, at least, is that it's an example of the technology of fracking, then outpacing the regulation. And then uh, in the U.S., for instance, depending on who was in the government, um, also then not very much appetite for regulation. Uh, I can say, uh, so I, I worked at the EPA for several years, but that was now 10 years ago, so I'm less up to date than I used to be. But you know, methane and CO2 are covered under the United States Clean Air Act, but specific regulations, not, not too many have, have been passed. So, yeah, that's, that's the situation. And on an international level, it's like at the UNFCCC process, it's about countries reporting their total emissions and then also reducing their total emissions and setting goals at the international level. So while we await international action, there are some voluntary efforts, which you talk about in your paper. They seem like more or less self-regulation by oil and gas companies in one case. Considering the danger, they don't sound like much. Your thoughts? I guess I have a slightly more positive view. Uh, Focusing on the international level, which is also where my research focuses mostly, I mean, there is, we have the Paris Agreement, there's legally binding aspects of it, but fundamentally it's about, there is no international environmental police that's going to enact a punishment if a, if a country doesn't meet their climate targets. So even, let's say, the formal binding agreements 
some aspects have uh, a voluntary character as well. For instance, so one initiative at, at COP26, the Global Methane Pledge was launched. This pledge is to, now let me look at the numbers, I think it's to reduce global methane emissions by 30% by 2030. And I think it helps uh, that, yeah, to have political attention and momentum. Of course, getting then implementation on the ground is always the tricky part. So, yeah, I, I guess I wouldn't be too... I have some hope that, let's say, the voluntary partnerships and voluntary initiatives really can achieve something. In the case of oil and gas, you mentioned you know, voluntary efforts on their part. One source of optimism, at least for some, is that you know, the, the oil and gas companies do actually should have a self-incentive to capture their methane because it's their product. So if they leak less, they can sell more and make more money. So on, on the one hand, it should be a no-brainer, and this, this should be something that a solution is easy to implement because they are on board. Um, yeah, so that's, that's, <laughs> that's where I'm coming from uh, on that end. So here we are, somewhat still in the dark about one of the biggest threats growing in the atmosphere in methane, and time is short. Is it too late for emergency action to slash methane emissions by humans? I think when in these conversations about climate, uh, questions about is it too late, they almost become philosophical questions. So, no, the answer is, you know, if we want to meet the Paris goal of staying uh, within 1.5 degrees of warming, a lot has to happen very soon. And it's technically possible, whether it's politically possible is more doubtful, but it's not that, you know, the laws of physics are preventing us or also that, you know, we're lacking the technologies to do this. But of course, keeping global warming between uh, under 1.5 degrees is looking less and less likely. I also come from the perspective that it's actually never too late. So we have these Paris goals. Um, we want to keep global warming well below 2 degrees um, and ideally below 1.5 degrees. But, you know, if we reach 2.1 degrees of warming, it doesn't mean we should give up because <laughs> 2.1 degrees of warming is way better than 2.5 degrees, and it's definitely way better than 4 degrees of warming. So basically, the less warming we have, the better. So late action is better than no action. But, yeah, to reach our Paris goals, we need a lot of action now and certainly more than, than we've seen to date. What are you working on next? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, in the very near future, I'm traveling to Bonn for what's called the Intercessionals. It's the preparatory meeting for the big UN climate conference, which will be in Egypt at the end of the year. Um, I have an interest in kind of the meta level of what you might call science policy interface. So how can science scientists and policymakers best interact, what's fruitful there, and really thinking about you know, information exchange. It's, it's not about one-way knowledge transfer from science to policy. It's much more complex than that. So that's one of the things I'm working on and also thinking about on a practical level, um, assessing needs of the science policy interface on methane with the idea to maybe launch um, 
uh, some sort of science policy platform. But these are these are ideas rather than concrete plans at the moment. Other than that, um, my group at the ISS, Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies in Germany, we have um, kind of a dual focus. One is really engaging in political processes, including the UNFCCC, but also the Climate and Clean Air Coalition, which is also a coalition that's, among other things, trying to advance and accelerate action on methane and combining that with our interdisciplinary research, combining physical sciences, but also then social and political science. We really need that combination of social and, and political science with raw science because that's what it's going to take. We have been speaking with Dr. Kathleen Marr. She leads the new paper, Beyond CO2 Equivalents, the Impacts of Methane on Climate, Ecosystems, and Health. That is open access. It's free for you to read, listeners. And you can find links to follow up in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org. Kathleen, thank you for sharing your valuable time with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. If you have a story idea or thoughts on something you've heard, contact us, radio at ecoshock.org. That's radio at ecoshock.org. There must have been people living in the 1400s who realized the whole story of devils and angels was a hoax, along with the kings supposedly appointed by God. The few woke up in the morning and knew their civilization was insane. Parts of humanity have always been mad, I guess, including the Greeks and the Romans with their wars, slaves, and superstition. You and I are in a position now that is not new. We hope. We try, even if the wave of wakening seldom comes in time. I'm Alex. Thank you for continuing with Radio Ecoshock in your ears. Thank you for caring about this wondrous world. I'll just change this thing. I've got to change this thing.